Ecclesiastes chapter 1. You know, music is a form of artistic expression. It's been around really since the dawn of man. Man has turned to music to help them march into battle, to help them through sad times and difficult times and so forth. So music has been around since the dawn of man. And, you know, in our last couple generations with the rise of technology, music was able to become increasingly universal, right? Music, when you think of Celtic music, right, you think of music that was primarily in Ireland and you didn't hear that unless you went there. But now we all know Celtic music. Why? Because it's, it's able to be acquired by all of us through technology and things of that sort. So music has become universal. It's able to become increasingly universal and reach larger and larger audiences due to technology. And as a result, over the past, let's say, century, music has served as a powerful vessel for cultural expression, societal change. There have been certain songs that have risen above the rest and they have become anthems that encapsulate the essence of a generation, that echo the sentiments of the time. Like a Rolling Stone by Bob Dylan. You may or may not know that song, but that was profoundly influential during the 60s. Billie Jean by Michael Jackson. Even Smells Like Teen Spirit by Nirvana. Or Imagine by John Lennon. Right, these are just a few examples of songs, for good or for bad. They have defined generations. I think there's one song, though, that may well have transcended above the others. Certainly a a more recent song, uh, meaning in terms of human history, more recent. It's become, I would say, the rallying cry for all mankind. And amazingly, it did it in just five words. Five words that I would gather that almost everybody in here knows well. I can't get no satisfaction. I can't get no satisfaction. Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, they struck a chord with this song. It's become one of the world's most popular songs. In 2021, it was number 31 on Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Songs of All Time. The song was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame in 1998. It was added to the National Recording Registry of the Library of Congress in 2006. Now, you may not care for the music of the Rolling Stones or what they stand for, but there is no denying that in the world's estimation, Mick was right. They could relate to the fact that he tried and he tried and he tried and he tried, but he still could get no satisfaction. And this lyric, it speaks of mankind's angst at never being able to find that thing or that experience that will bring lasting satisfaction and happiness. And when you think about it, there is no drive more fundamental to humanity than the drive to be happy. There's many things that we can find throughout life that bring us a measure of happiness. We can find pleasure in this or in that, in him or her, in an accomplishment or an activity. And I think that's part of God's common grace to man. But the problem is, is that the pleasure that we find in these things, they don't last. 
And this idea can be related to an economic principle that, has been, that is called the law of diminishing returns. The law of diminishing returns basically says that we receive less and less satisfaction from something as we spend the same amount of time with it. For example, you may get a great deal of joy out of visiting Disneyland. It's called the happiest place on earth for a reason, right? We love going to Disneyland. But if you were to go there eight hours a day, every day, for the next year, the law of diminishing returns says that you will not be enjoying the park to the same degree that you did after a year's time. In fact, you'd probably be sick and tired of it. It's not Disneyland's fault, though. The place has many interesting, has pleasant, fun, family-friendly, entertaining things about it. It's been entertaining people of all ages since it opened in 1955. So the problem's not Disneyland. The problem is us. As much as we demand that something make us happy, we will eventually be faced with the fact that nothing created is able to fully satisfy our needs. Now, you may have felt this way at some point in your life. Maybe it was for an hour. Maybe it was for a day, a week, a month. Maybe it was for a season of your life. You felt frustrated, disillusioned, disappointed, or, or even just maybe just bored with life. And for all of your activity, all of your efforts, you, you feel like you are on a treadmill of sorts. You are running, but you are getting nowhere. And if this at all describes you, then I'm sure the experience, it has been somewhat disconcerting. But what you need to realize is that this discouraging journey, it has brought you, perhaps, to the end of yourself. And as uncomfortable and as frightening as that may be, you are in a good place. Because coming to the end of yourself puts you in the place where you can begin with God. Now, in the first 11 verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 1, Solomon started to make his case for the emptiness of life apart from God by asking us the question that we see in verse 3, where he says, What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? And to prove his point, he asked us to learn from two different sources. From the world around us, and then from our experiences in it. And first he points out the constant cycles that we can observe in nature. The earth remains the same from one generation to the next. The sun keeps rising and setting. The wind goes out, but it returns. The sea, it never fills up. They all seem to be stuck in a rut. And they're just going to keep going on and on, whether you like it or not with no gain really to be found. All things are wearisome, he says. And this weariness of life, it's been going on for all of human history. One generation goes, another generation comes, and we just keep repeating the same things over and over without any gain. There's nothing new under the sun. Mankind lives his days under the sun, chasing after the wind, trying to catch something that he knows is there but can't be grasped. And Solomon looks at this endless pursuit of mankind 
under the sun and he has a word for it. Havel. Vanity. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity, he says. See, this is the conclusion that Solomon comes to for those who live their lives, he says, under the sun. It's one of his favorite phrases. And what he means by under the sun is apart from God. Everybody lives under the sun, but not everybody who lives under the sun has God in their life. If you live only under the sun, it's living your life apart from God. Those who choose to live their lives basically from a, from a purely secular perspective. And if you seek to find meaning and happiness in life, but you leave God out of the equation, well, you're doomed to come to the same conclusion that Solomon did. All is vanity. See, deep down inside, we all know that life has meaning. We feel it. We, we long for it. And we keep looking for it. And Solomon feels the same way, and he's inviting us to join him on his spiritual journey. He's inviting us to learn from another source, right? We learn from nature. We learn from our experience in the world. Now he's inviting us to learn from another source. Him. This is why he's written the book. This is why he's gathered together his students. Because this is a book, a lecture, essentially, that was given to students. Ecclesiastes is Solomon's autobiographical account of what God taught him from his futile attempt to live his life apart from God. And he wants us to learn from what he discovered, both the good and the bad. And here's what Solomon found in his exploration of wisdom. Here it is. Man's wisdom alone is insufficient to make sense of life. Man's wisdom alone is insufficient to make sense of life. The title of the sermon is The Futility of Seeking to Understand Life. The Futility of Seeking understand life. So let's read now what Solomon has to say, remembering that these are not just Solomon's words. More significantly, these are God's words to us. So let's have ask him to give us ears to hear what he has to say. Uh, beginning in verse 12, chapter 1, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. It's a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. I've seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, Behold, I, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. And I set my mind to know wisdom, and to know madness and folly. I realize that this also is striving after wind, because in much wisdom there is much grief, and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. God, these are, these are troubling and even confusing words to us, Lord, but, but you are speaking wisdom to us through Solomon's life, through his experiences. And so we need your help to not only understand what he's saying, but 
to apply it to our lives, to adjust our way of living and what we are doing and what we are seeking and where we are looking to find what we know we need. Meaning, purpose, satisfaction, happiness. And so, Father, we invite you, God, to to work in us in such a way that compels us to seek you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So Solomon begins first by introducing himself with a little more info in verse 12 here. He says, I, the preacher, he calls himself the preacher, which is the word Koheleth. So Koheleth, the preacher, Solomon, these are all, I'm referring to the same person. Okay? So if I use one name or the other, those, those three names for Solomon. So he says, I, the preacher, I've been king over Israel in Jerusalem. So he says here, he says, I have been king. And so this tells us that he is writing at the other end of his reign, right? He reigned for over Israel for 40 years as king. So he's old now. And he desires to take the wisdom that he gained after having lived his life and now impart it to those who are more or less starting out their lives. And so this is the, the classic scenario of the uh, older man giving Wise advice to young men. Happens all the time. The, the question is, is, do the younger ones take in the advice and the wisdom of the older one? That's always the case. The wisdom is being imparted, but are the young listening? Right? So, so that's what's going on here. The advice includes practical wisdom for daily life. But his greater desire is, is, is to cause his readers to long for the answers to the ultimate question. How can I find meaning in life? And so in his efforts to answer the question, Solomon, he was willing to explore every avenue in this world. And what he found was that in this world, he says, all is vanity. All is vanity. We all need to find meaning and satisfaction in life, but you won't find it apart from God. And Solomon should know. Because he was both willing and able to do what no one else could do. And the first thing that he did was to seek meaning through wisdom. And, and when that effort proved an unhappy and empty pursuit, he decided to see if morality, just you know, being a good person, is the key to finding happiness in life. Well, but that only brought in frustration and stuff. And so as those seeking to learn from Solomon, where does that leave us? Well, let's find out. So the first thing that we can learn is that Solomon's search for meaning is good. It's a good thing that he's seeking to do. Solomon's search for meaning is good. His desire reflects the desires of all men to find answers about life. He loves wisdom. He loves knowledge. He wants to seek it wherever it can be found. And he's convinced that he can find it. So he says there in verse 13, he says, I set my mind to explore, to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. So there's a few things about this statement that that we can see here. First of all, is that his desire is sincere. He sets his mind, he says, to this task. 
he truly wanted to gain the knowledge that would answer the ultimate questions that one can have about life. Whatever mental discipline this search for truth required, well, Solomon was ready. He set his mind to this. Second, we see that his approach is comprehensive. He plans to seek and explore everything. Is he exaggerating when he's saying this? Can he really explore, as he says here, all that is done under heaven? Well, he may be sincere, but is this feasible? Well, we need to remember who we're talking about here. See, based on the Bible's description, we're talking about not only the wisest, but the wealthiest man who ever lived. Remember, God gave Solomon not only great wisdom, he gave him great wealth, too. Just how wealthy was Solomon, just kind of as an aside here, just to get a picture of the man that we're seeking to learn from here. First King mentions that every year Solomon received over 25 tons of gold. Every year. Second Chronicles 1, it paints quite a picture. It says, it says that Solomon, during his reign, made silver and gold as plentiful in Jerusalem as stones. One account I found estimates that from all these sources, right, 25 tons of gold every year he reigns for 40 years, he brought in roughly $1.1 billion of gold each year, making his assets in the multiple billions of dollars. That's just a reference point, you know, something we can understand right now. And so that was just his annual income. That was like his paycheck. But to that paycheck, he got a lot of bonuses in addition. We could also add a few other things. First of all, remember, he inherited wealth from his father, David, who was king. The gold and the silver that he regularly received outside of that 25 tons, he regularly received gold and silver from the kings of Arabia. The gifts often would come in from other governors and merchants. They're all just vying for his, for his pleasure, you know, and they're just so they're giving gifts. He also, as we're told after his reign, that he heavily taxed his people. These are all sources of income in addition to the 25 tons. So on top of all that, Solomon, he received tribute money from countries and kingdoms, gold, silver, ivory, animals, slaves. And so on, uh, also every three years, due to his business partnership with the king of Tyre, he garnered from that relationship gifts of gold and spices and precious stones and garments and armor and so on each year, also from a variety of other in, in, sources. So it's safe to say that the king was not only rich, he was, and arguably still is, the wealthiest human who has ever walked the face of planet Earth. And so he truly had the ability to explore every area of human endeavor, all that has been done under heaven. Thirdly, his goal here is it's commendable. Solomon loves wisdom. Solomon believes it is the key to finding the meaning of life. And in, indeed, in a sense, it is. Reading through Proverbs, Solomon is, is, is very clear how valuable wisdom is in life. He saw it as the highest virtue. He desired his life to be governed by wisdom. 
But the term that he uses here for wisdom is just a, a broad, general term. It's speaking of wisdom in general. Not necessarily wisdom from God. Now, that doesn't make it bad. Not, not at all. There, there's much wisdom that God has enabled us to gather from our own observations about life. And we can find many truths about man and about life in many places. Philosophy. There's truth there. Psychology. There's truth there. Bushido. There's truth there. The farmer's almanac. There's truth to be found there. False religions even have true and wise things mingled in amongst the falsehoods and the lies. You know, for Christianity to be right doesn't mean that everything else has to be wrong. This is a part of God's common grace. All truth really is God's truth. If it's true, it's, it's because God has made it to be true. And we do find truth and wisdom in many places. But hear this. Hear this. Human wisdom can only take us so far. Human wisdom may be able to give you good advice. But can it lead you to Christ? It may be able to help us avoid some common pitfalls in life. But can it rescue you from sin's bondage? Human wisdom may be able to calm us down, right? But can it grant us eternal life? Can it give us peace with God? And in Solomon's case, it may help us appreciate more about what happens in the world. But can it help us understand the meaning of life? Let's see what Solomon found out. So, though his desire was sincere, his approach, it was comprehensible, his commendable search for meaning, it proved fruitless in the end. The wisest of all men, he came to the discouraging realization that life's meaning can't be found through our wisdom. Life's meaning can't be found through our wisdom. So this intrepid explorer for life's meaning, he applied all his powers of insight and discernment and he ran hard, smack, into a brick wall. His first attempt was a complete failure and surprisingly, he says, unpleasant. He describes the search as an unpleasant burden. He calls it in verse 13, he says, it was a grievous path. Another interpretation could be, it was rotten business. And this word here for, for grievous in verse 13, describing this task of, of, of understanding life through our wisdom, through his wisdom, this word is the same word that Joseph used to describe the cows in Pharaoh's dream about the seven years of famine that were coming. It says, the seven lean and ugly cows. Ugly here is that word for grievous. Later on in, in chapter 4 of Ecclesiastes here, Solomon links this, this same word of grievous. He links it with his favorite word, havel. Listen to what he says. He says, this is chapter 4. He says, there was a certain man with a dependent having neither a son nor a brother, yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, 
And he never asked, and for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? And then he sums it up, that, that whole thing, he sums up this way. This too is vanity and a grievous task. Now, we'll get there in a few weeks as to what he's all talking about there. But you see, he's linking the vanity with this, with this rottenness. This is terrible, he's saying. He's speaking generally, but he seems to be describing something that is not as he thought it would be. And what also increases the burden of it is that it's not something that he could simply avoid or ignore. Like, you know, never mind. You know, I don't need to worry about the meaning of life. No, he was compelled to search. And then he was repelled by what he found. And he describes his efforts to find meaning in life through wisdom as a grievous task, which he then says, he says, God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. You know, think of a child. He's growing up in a home where mom and dad are constantly at each other's throats. Constant strife, constant fighting. You know, the family structure, it is ordained by God for how children are to be raised. But because of sin, and many times, that very structure that God has made it becomes a place of strife, anger, sadness. And what can the child do about that raised there? Nothing. It's a sad, evil, and unpleasant burden for that child. And that is how Solomon describes his first effort at finding out the answers to life. He attributes his drive to find meaning to God. I can't escape this any more than a child can escape. A young child can escape their family. I can't escape this drive to find meaning, referring it to being an, un an unavoidable affliction given to all mankind. I want to know. It's like that annoying itch on your foot. Have you ever had that foot, foot uh, that itch, like deep in the callus of your heel, and you're like grinding your heel into the ground and you just can't reach it? He says that's what this is like. I want to know the meaning of life, and I can't say no to this. I can't just set it aside and say, someone else will figure it out. Perhaps that came as a result of what God, when He blessed him with a wise and discerning heart, that included the hunger to keep knowing more. And, and he can't escape this hunger to know more about life. And when you can't get that itch, it happens to me when I'm driving. I hate that, right? You just have to learn to live with it. And Solomon says, this is God's doing. God has afflicted man with an undeniable longing for ultimate answers to ultimate questions. But all of his searching for what and the why about life, well, it just ended in sadness for Solomon. Francis Schaeffer, a, um, a Christian thinker of a previous generation, he once wrote this. He said, quote, all men have a deep longing for significance, a longing for meaning, no man, regardless of his theoretical system, is content to look at himself as a finally, a finally meaningless machine which can and will be discarded totally and forever. End quote. There's the itch. And Francis Schaeffer is, is explaining it to us. But then along comes, <coughs> excuse me, those who refuse to turn to God. Men like Stephen Hawking. What do they do with this itch for meaning? 
You know what they do? They simply surrender to the conclusion that there is no point. And we just need to do our best to live with that understanding. He wrote this, quote, We're just an advanced breed of monkeys on a minor planet of a very average star. Oh, but we can understand the universe. You see, Solomon had at least enough wisdom and maybe even humility here to admit what Hawking won't. The effort of pursuing understanding is an unpleasant burden. Now, in addition, Solomon says this, that meaning, it proved unreachable. Meaning proved unreachable. So after applying all of his wisdom and all of his resources towards his search, this is what he concluded in verse 14. I've seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. Okay, he's using three of his favorite phrases here to describe the search. Under the sun, vanity and striving after wind. I already related to you what under the sun is. It represents the secular worldview. Life under the sun is life without consideration for God. All that you do in this world to find meaning apart from God, apart from God's wisdom, apart from God's laws, apart from acknowledging God's right over you as your maker, as your ruler, has as much substance to it as the steam on your cup of tea in the morning. You know there's more to life than living and dying. But if you ignore God in your efforts to find what you're missing, all your efforts end in exhaustion and disappointment. He says that's like, it's like trying to catch the wind. Now, just to be fair, apparently catching air is actually possible and profitable. Uh, in 2015, someone posted a listing for Kanye West Yeezus Tour Air for $5 on eBay. It is literally a plastic Ziploc bag with written in Sharpie, Kanye West Tour Air is what it says. Filled from presumably a Kanye West concert. Well, that $5 bag of air popped in price. More than 90 people bid on the item, bringing the Yeezus oxygen to $60,000. Sad thing is when people with good minds simply accept the conclusion that life has no meaning, it's only because they have first rejected God. You've heard of the atheist Richard Dawkins. His conclusion about human existence is, quote, neither good nor evil, neither kind nor cruel, but simply callous, indifferent to all suffering, lacking in purpose, end quote. This is not Kohelet. He's not saying that because Kohelet, Solomon, has not rejected God. But he's acknowledging that just to believe in God, to give Him lip service, but seek meaning apart from Him, meaning in life is still unreachable for you. So the preacher here, he sums up his pursuit for meaning, and he sums it up with a proverb in verse 15. 
it's a statement that you have to sit and kind of chew on for a while because it's not altogether clear what he's saying. It's hard to understand. Look at what he says in verse 15. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. So that's his summary of his pursuit of finding meaning through his wisdom. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. And what I lean towards is that Solomon is saying that instead of finding meaning, what he found was that some things in life are unfixable. Some things in life are unfixable. We come across crooked things in our life. And despite all of our efforts, we can't make them straight. Some conflicts, they just can't be overcome. Some broken relationships can't be reconciled. Some injustices go unpunished. Some evils get rewarded. Some good gets overlooked. Some illnesses never go away. Some things are just crooked. And all of our efforts won't change that. But why? Frustration, see? Frustration. Why? Well, one reason is sin. Another reason is God. Sin makes things crooked. But so does God. Solomon speaks to this in chapter 7, actually. He says this in chapter 7, verse 13. He says, Consider the work of God, for who is able to straighten what he has done? Having to deal with something in your life that is crooked, that is not easy. But it should give us pause to realize that God has his reasons for allowing it to stay that way. It doesn't mean that God caused the sin that made it crooked. No, God hates sin. He has nothing to do with sin. And He doesn't cause sin. He doesn't even take pleasure in your pain. He doesn't delight in your distress over these crooked things. Here's what He tells you. I have a good purpose for it. That's why you can go on. That's why you can even rejoice through though you want things to be bent in a different direction. I think Solomon here is also poetically suggesting, I think, that, that, that despite all our efforts to the contrary, life will just sometimes disappoint you. Life will sometimes disappoint. What is lacking cannot be counted. You can't count something that isn't there. You can't make someone do something they don't want to do. You can't make them be something they are not. And despite your well-thought-out plans, life may go a different direction. And you can't make a life without God. You, you can't make a life without God have meaning, no matter how much you think it should have meaning. Solomon seems to be saying that some things in life are just, they're unfixable. And all your wisdom, all your attempts, all your positive thinking, all your good intentions, all your planning, all your hopes to the contrary, they're all powerless to make them be what you want them to be. We'll come across much in life that we can't straighten, that we can't compensate for, that we can't figure out, that we can't fully understand. And for Solomon, this was what his search for meaning through human wisdom alone amounted to. This is an unpleasant 
burden. This is an unpleasant burden chasing, chasing after an unreachable goal with the discovery that much in life is just, it's unfixable. The wisest man in the world is frustrated in what he found. Can you relate? Now, you would think that such a disappointing conclusion, that would end Solomon's efforts, but it doesn't. He refuses to accept that this is the way things just, they are, right? So, take Thomas Edison, for example. He, he's famous for inventing the carbon telephone transmitter, the light bulb, the phonograph, right? Well, according to legend, it took over 1,000 unsuccessful attempts before he created the first successful light bulb. Here's how he summed it up. He's famous for saying this, quote, Many of life's failures are people who didn't realize how close they were to success when they gave up. Well, Solomon would have said, you know, I like that guy. I like Thomas Edison. I'm not going to give up. He lets, he, he, he lets us in on his thinking here in verse 16. So failure, you know, effort number one, complete failure. So he moves on. He says in verse 16, so I said to myself, right? So you can see him like, wow, miserable. This was, this, was, this was terrible what I found. And so he's sitting there thinking to himself. And he says, you know what? Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. So that may sound like he's boasting. But it's not just boasting for boasting's sake. He really was the wisest man. He knew God had granted his request for wisdom and discernment. God told him that. These were divinely given. So he's not trying to necessarily be proud here. There could be pride mixed in with her, and that may be fueling his desire to keep going. But if anyone should be able to figure out what he's saying, it's me. God gave me the wisdom to figure these things out. I should be able to figure this out. Or to put it another way, if he couldn't figure out the meaning of life, no one can. That's how he's viewing this. So instead of quitting, the preacher considered another avenue to explore. So if life's meaning can't be found, found through our wisdom, well, perhaps happiness can be found through exploring morality. Happiness, can happiness be found through exploring morality, being good? He had yet to explore the differences, he says, between right and wrong. Listen to how he puts it in verse 17. And I set my mind, so, so the same determination is being applied towards uh, search number two. I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. Now, he's saying he wants to know both wisdom and folly for the purpose of comparing them. When we hear madness, we're thinking insanity. Why would he want to explore insanity? But that's not really what the... The word, that's not the full picture of the word. There's a moral component to this word. It's better understood as, as the madness and folly of living in disobedience to God. The NET translation brings these ideas out in its translation of verse 17. It says it this way, and you can hear the comparative aspect here. So I decided to discern the benefit of wisdom and knowledge over foolish behavior and ideas. Morality, right? Being a good person will always be more beneficial than acting and thinking foolishly. But just how much better? Solomon wants to find out. Maybe this is the key to life, being a good person. 
See, when you think about it, this describes how most people approach life today. Even those people who don't have a place for God in their, in their lives at all, there's, there's no, you know, uh, maybe I acknowledge him, maybe I don't know if he's there, whatever. You know, that point of view in life, even they know that there is a basic understanding of right and wrong. They have that ingrained within them. There's a basic understanding of what's good and what's evil. We know that as our conscience, God-given. Most people desire to be morally good. They desire to live upright lives. Is, is the key to happiness found in being a good person? Is it, is it in knowing the difference between right and wrong? Is that where it's at? It didn't seem to take Solomon very long to see that morality was not the path to satisfaction. He says in verse at the end of 17, I realize that this also is striving after wind. So like before, he states the reason for his conclusion through a proverb. Verse 18. Because, this is striving after wind. Why? Because in much wisdom there is much grief and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. So human wisdom failed because some things in life are simply unfixable. And now he's saying morality hasn't led to happiness but much grief and increasing pain. Now, I'll be honest with you. I, I don't know exactly what he's saying here. Uh, it, he's simply saying it was neither enjoyable nor profitable. And perhaps it's because his approach included exploring the results of foolish behavior and ideas, which we know he's actually going to dive headfirst into. Right? If you know the story of Solomon, you know he probably explores foolishness a little more than he should have. Have you ever watched a movie? I'm trying to explain why this didn't turn out good. And I thought of this. You know, have you ever watched a movie that you knew before you watched it probably wasn't a good idea? But you watched it anyway. And when it was over, you were like, oh, I wish I hadn't watched that. You know, we, we can have what I like to call morbid fascinations in life. And in college, there was a videotape videotape that's about this big and you stick it into a machine and that's how you watch movies. Um, There was a videotape going around called Faces of Death. And it was footage of actual people actually dying compiled on a videotape that was, you know, produced and put out. It wasn't like some bootleg thing. And I remember coming in uh, in college, I came into a room and so they were like putting in the video and they, oh, what are you watching? Uh, watching Faces of Death. And I just kind of lingered. I, like, I don't know if I want to watch this. After a few scenes, you begin to realize how quickly that Hollywood cannot create the reality of someone visually seeing somebody die. You know, people get shot and all kinds of... There's a 100% difference. You can tell when you see someone acting out being killed and the reality of it. And I was watching a few of these scenes. And I, no joke, I came away sick to my stomach. And I thought, why? I I knew I shouldn't have watched that. It's disgusting. But yet I was drawn to it nonetheless. I wished I hadn't stayed to watch. It was knowledge I wish I hadn't gained. Perhaps Solomon is saying something similar to that here. 
There are problems in the world that when you know about them, they bring grief. They bring pain into your life too. You wish that you could somehow unknow these things. You know, my kids were younger. And I were dri- if I was driving in the car, you know, I had to, you know, I just realized nobody listens to the radio anymore. Why would we? We don't have to listen to commercials anymore, right? But radio used to be all we had. And I'd be listening and some news report would come on, you know, so-and-so four-year-old child's been kidnapped and I would just immediately reach over and turn off the radio. I don't, I don't want to think that. Because I had a four-year-old and a three-year-old and a one-year-old. And, and it immediately in my mind translated to my kids. It's like, no, I don't want to hear that. Turning it off. See, does such knowledge make us wiser? Because we now know how much better morality is than immorality. I don't mean just sexual immorality, just immorality. Yes, I guess we're wiser when we know more about immorality. But are we better? Think of the garden. The knowledge of good and evil. Does that make things better? I think we can agree with Solomon that to pursue that kind of knowledge is a vain pursuit. And it only leads to grief. So if you're feeling a bit depressed right now, depressed about life, I'm right here with you. I've been studying this all week. (laughs) Perhaps ignorance would be better. We don't have to think about these things, right? We don't come to church to feel depressed about the vanity of life under the sun. But we need to remember that there is good in what you might be feeling right now. For example, I went to a funeral yesterday of of a brother in Christ I've known for 30 years. I'll be honest, before going, I really didn't feel like going. I mean, I love this brother... He made that giving box in the back for us when we went out of the church. So his presence is here uh, through his handiwork. I I didn't want to go. It would have been much easier just to do what I normally do on a Saturday. What would have been my preference? That I would have preferred to just go on about life, not contemplating a topic so sobering and sad as the death of a friend. I'm never going to see him again on this earth. And throughout the service, I cried on on several occasions. Throughout this service, I contemplated death from various angles. Contemplated my death, Rosita's death, my kids' death, my parents' death, the death of dear friends. Would I call that enjoyable? Were those topics or feelings that made me happy? No. But see, those... Feelings and those thoughts, they play a much needed role in my life and in yours. Because I also contemplated the goodness and the mercy of God. I rejoiced in the sufficiency of Christ to save me, a sinner. I, I praised God for turning death into gain. And I, I would not have received those blessings unless I was also willing to go through the grief. See, Solomon has touched the stone. And he said, it's painful. And you don't have to touch the stove too to learn the same 
lesson. He's showing us the pain of trying to find meaning in life apart from God in the hopes that we will believe Him when He said it's all just going to amount to vanity. And since there's no meaning apart from God, there is only one conclusion. And He tells us at the end of the book, right? This, was, this book was meant to be delivered in one piece. And so we have to always keep our mind on where He's going with this. Here's the conclusion that He comes to at the end. He says, Fear God and keep His commands. Fear God and keep His commands. But for us to get and really believe that blessing, He's going to bring us through all the grief first. He has to show us that it's all vanity. Much like a funeral, it's not pleasant. But we will be rejoicing along the way and we will be thankful in the end if we heed what he says. So here's what we can learn from Solomon this morning. His search for meaning is good. But it can't be found through our own wisdom. It can't be found through our own efforts. Whether it be our own wisdom or our own perceived goodness. He's saying man's wisdom alone, it is insufficient to make sense of life. And if you, if you think that you can leave God on the sidelines as if He's optional, your efforts in life will be an exercise in futility. Now, let's be honest here. Those of you who claim Christ, that doesn't mean that you're following Him to find meaning and happiness. Solomon knew and loved God, but yet he still pursued all of this. And you might be doing that too. God, in terms of life and your happiness, is good. Yay, Team Jesus. But He's not really... You're not really following His wisdom for how to live. That's optional. It's optional. If something seems good, you're going to take a look and find out if it really isn't. And when you find out the stove is hot, you're like, okay, well, that wasn't a good idea. But will you listen then? Or is God still optional? Is His wisdom still optional? So let's be honest. Just because you're here doesn't mean you believe that God's wisdom is best for your life. So listen. No knowledge, no philosophy, no spirituality, no self-improvement can replace your need for God's wisdom. Solomon came to find that there is no setting God aside as if He's optional for us. And the way that we are to understand Ecclesiastes is in light of God's promise that He makes in Scripture. He says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And Solomon is exhibit A. No wiser man exists before or after him. No man had better opportunity or greater resources to explore life apart from God than this man, the preacher, Koheleth, Solomon. And God destroys each attempt. He brings it to the same frustrating conclusion. But God's goal is more than proving the inadequacy of our wisdom. He wants us to embrace His wisdom revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, whom the Bible calls the wisdom of God. And here is what God desires that you would do. This is your main application this morning. Trust Christ to show you the way. Trust Christ to show you the way in life. 
Jesus entered into our frustrations, into our foolish world, so that He could show us how to live wisely. It's the way of faith where you're trusting in the truth that He reveals in His Word. It's the way of hope where you're anticipating the future that He says is coming for us. It's the way of love where you're actually finding joy in living for others and not just yourself. So Jesus can wisely lead you even though the even through the unfixable problems that you're going to face in life. And you don't need life to go the way that you prefer or according to your plans to be able to experience joy and peace. Instead, we can submit ourselves to the plans and the purposes and the ways of the God who sent His Son to rescue us from all of our foolishness and rebellion. But we must humble ourselves. We must trust His wisdom for our lives. He will fix everything in the end. Nothing is unfixable to God. He will bring the satisfaction that we've been trying and trying and trying to find. But that day is still ahead of us. It's still coming. Which means that we will still experience grief and struggle to understand why. Life won't all make sense to us this side of eternity, but this much we know. The answers that we want are not going to be found anywhere else but in Jesus Christ. We silence ourselves before you, God. We... I believe everybody in this room right now knows they need to listen. The question is, is have you prepared their heart to the degree that they're ready to submit? We have a long way to go through this book. And each time we're going to come back to the same idea. Am I going to submit myself to God or am I just going to live under the sun and scrap out the good from life, but be frustrated in the end. Oh Lord, I pray that you'll spare people that because you're kind and you're merciful. You know how to speak to us. You know how to pierce us with your word. And I pray you do that today. Both those who claim you and those who are still wondering about you. You are the way. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.